Well, if you have your Bibles, open over to Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Luke chapter 1, verse 57, or you can follow along on U version. And while you're getting there, uh, it is said this time of year, tis the season. Tis the season. And I would ask, tis the season for what? Tis the season for what? And, you know, songs tell us what the season is. It's a season to be jolly or joyful or thankful or grateful or generous or many other words. And those things should describe our attitude this time of year if we understand the reason for this time of year, the reason for this season. But I fear that we don't. I fear that we don't. I, I fear that this time of year it's been so twisted and turned into something that it's not. And it's become materialized and commercialized. And uh, you, know, you start seeing in the beginning of November to mid-November Christmas commercials. You know, nothing says Christmas like a brand new piece of jewelry. Or a new truck from the Selzathon. And um, I, don't, I don't know about you, unless they're buying that brand new vehicle for their uh, spouse, uh, you know, just buying it outright. Uh, I know that if I were to come home and surprise Kay with a new vehicle, she would be like, didn't you think you should have talked to me about this first? What's the payments going to look like? How long are we going to be paying on this thing? Did you buy the vehicle outright? What's going on? I always wonder that watching those commercials. But it just speaks to kind of what this time of year has become. And it's become a time of busyness. We've got so much going on and we're in our mind we're constantly thinking about what I still have left to do to get ready I still got to go and buy gifts for these people and I still got to get everything I need for dinner and I've got to go and make sure that every I've got room for people and we become so busy that we don't take time to think about what this season really means and I've worked in retail for a really long time, and one of the things I've noticed is that in the pursuit of all of these things that we think this time of year means, the, the materials, all that kind of stuff, in my honest opinion, it really brings out the worst in us. It brings out the worst in us because we're in pursuit of all of these things that are are really quite fleshly and we're, we're in pursuit of all of these things that we think is what really makes this season important. And then we start to see people who they lack compassion, they lack grace, they, they lack all of these things. It really just kind of brings out the worst in us. We've just kind of forgotten why this time of year is so important. And I think back to last week and I see Mary just pouring out praise for what God is doing for her, what God is going to do for the humble, what God is going to do for the nation of Israel and everything that this child she is carrying represents. And we see the 
the real reason behind this season. And we're making our way to next week. We look forward to the birth of Christ and we look forward to this child and the, the fulfillment of these prophecies that the, the Messiah has come. But this morning in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah pours out this prophecy and Zechariah really wants us to remember that as we look forward to the birth of the Messiah, we also need to look forward to what he will do. We need to look forward to what God is going to accomplish through this child and we need to look forward to, really, we need to look forward to Easter. Because Christmas is important, but you can't separate it from Easter. Because he talks about, in our text this morning, just what this child will become and what he will do and the significance of what he will mean. And I think within Zechariah's prophecy, he reminds us the reason that we celebrate this time of year. And so we're going to start in verse 57. And it says this, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And so the time has come. Elizabeth has, it's time for her to give birth to this child. And, you know, this angel Gabriel had appeared to Zechariah and told him what exactly would happen. And the time has finally come for her to give birth. And she bears a son and her neighbors and her relatives all gather around because they've heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoice with her. They rejoice with her. They rejoice in the fact that, you know, she was of old age wasn't likely that she would be able to have a child. And guess what? She is now having a child. And the, her relatives, her neighbors, they come and rejoice with her. And the reason they rejoice is because when you look at how the Jews view children, they view children as a, a blessing from God. So there was reason to rejoice. Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, they are children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. And so they gather around and they celebrate with her the fact that the, the Lord had shown mercy to her and that she would be giving birth to this child. And can't help but wonder when I read this. You think there was also a little bit of relief I mean, she was past the age of childbearing, and here she is getting ready to have a child, and she has a child. And I, I think there was probably a little bit of relief thinking about the possible health risk of having a child at her age. But they rejoice. They rejoice. 
When the time comes, the eighth day comes, for, and it's the time for them to circumcise the child. This was a common thing for Jewish boys to be circumcised on the eighth day. This was a sign of the special covenant with God, and it was an identifying mark of God's people. We see how this comes about all the way in Genesis 17, 9 through 14. It says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so this is following that design, that covenant design, that this is what they would do on the eighth day. And then we see that the relatives, they want to start calling the boy Zechariah after his father. But Elizabeth says, no, his name is going to be John. And this confuses the relatives because they don't have any relatives with that name. Traditionally, a a child was given the name of his father or relative who had that name and it was passed down. But that's not the case here. And the people are confused. And so they start signing over to uh, Zechariah like, hey, what are we really going to call this kid? Because surely it's not John. You know, I imagine Elizabeth sitting there like, I just said his name is John. But he's sitting there signing to him and, and inquiring, like, what do you really want him to be called? And he asked for a tablet and he writes down his name is John. And it says they all wondered, why? Why John? Why John? And then after this happens, immediately we see this supernatural event take place. Remember, he was not able to speak or hear after uh, his moment of unbelief before Gabriel. And now all of a sudden his mouth is opened, his tongue is loosed, he's able to hear, and he spoke. And the first thing he does is bless God. The first thing he does is bless God. Imagine this, he's been silent ever since. And now, the birth of his child, with all of this that's taken place, he's finally able to speak. And imagine what he's thinking, this internal you know, praise probably that he's been giving, now able to pour forth from his mouth. He blesses God. He praises God for what has happened. And of course, fear comes on all their neighbors, like, oh, what's this? Like, he wasn't able to speak, he wasn't able to hear, and now all of a sudden he can do this, and, and they started to become fearful, and all these things were talked about throughout the hill country. You know, that happened, things happen, we, we see something and we tell everybody about it, right? That happens here, everybody's speaking about this, and it says, all who heard them laid this up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? There's something special about this child, there's something there's something different about this child. For all of this stuff to take, they're not giving him the name of Zechariah. They're naming him John. Uh, he was able to speak out of nowhere. There's something special about this. And I wonder if they thought about this later on when John comes out and he starts to teach and preach. I wonder if they had in mind, hey, this is that same John. But now we're going to move into verse 67. And this is 
Zechariah's response, after all of this stuff happens, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he begins to prophesy. And what we see here, a lot like what we saw with Mary's song of praise last week, it's just filled full of Old Testament allusions and illustrations and scripture. And it's an amazing prophecy. And so we're going to start in verse 67. He goes, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This is known as the Benedictus. And he's prophesying because of the Holy Spirit. And he's it kind of reads like a mix of praise and prophecy here. And he starts by talking, you know, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited. You know, it's interesting, this word visited. If we, if we don't think too much about it, it could be easy to kind of move right past this word visit or visited. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel, they were taught to look forward to the coming of God, the coming of the Messiah, they had been taught to, to think about that and expect that and look forward to that time when God would visit them. It's interesting, the Greek word used for visit here is the, the word that we get our word bishop from, and it means somebody who looks at something intently. And I like how R.C. Sproul's points out about this word visited. He says, there is a positive sense and a negative sense. The bishop in the ancient world was often like a general of the troops, He would come to the outpost not only to see how the troops were in times of crisis, but also in times of preparation to review the troops and see if they were in proper state of preparedness. When God comes to visit us, for some it will be a surprise visit. They will not be ready for the bishop. And it's really true what he's bringing up here because it says he has visited and redeemed his people. And it's important to think about what they were looking for in a redeemer. The word for redeem is a word that means payment or ransom, to be set free by paying a price. And it's important to talk about this because at the time, Jews were hoping for a kind of a physical redeemer. They were, they were waiting for a militant redeemer. They were waiting for somebody who would come and bring them out from the hands of bondage from Rome. And they were anticipating that it would be somebody who would be this militant deliverer. And Luke twenty four twenty one says, But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Remember the story as these men are walking away from the tomb. We had hoped that he was one to redeem Israel, yes. And besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. They would expect a militant Messiah. But we know that Christ was not a militant Messiah to take his people out of the hands of Rome. Instead, he was a Messiah who would come and judge not the enemies, but his own people. He was a Messiah who would save his people from their sins. He was a Messiah that wouldn't be militant. He was a Messiah that would come and save the people from their sins by the shedding of his blood on the cross. Ephesians 1, 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And 1 Peter 1, 18-21, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You see, they needed a redeemer. They needed somebody who would come and make that payment that would pay the price for them. 
You see, they were powerless. We are powerless to save ourselves from sin. We are powerless to save ourselves from the condition of this fallen world. We are powerless to save ourselves from our sinful nature. It requires payment. And that payment is Christ's blood. Then we go into verse 69. It says, And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. I like these verses here, I really do, because I think these verses kind of show this description of a battle that has been won. A battle that has been won, and it starts with this horn of salvation. What does this mean, horn of salvation? Well, a horn of an animal would signify its power. The bigger the horn, the more the power of the animal. In Scripture, we see this as a symbol of power and victory, and we see that Jesus is the horn of salvation. Psalm 18:2. the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. He was the horn of salvation who would save the people out of the hands of their enemies. And this is what salvation means, to save or to rescue. And see, in a very real sense for us, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior, delivers us from the power, from the hands of our enemy. From the hands, from the power of our enemy, Satan, and into the kingdom of God. Colossians 1, 12 through 14, given thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And we know that here it says in the house of his servant David, we know that the Savior would come from the line of David. Psalm 89, 3 through 4, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. In Psalm 89, 35 through 37, once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. And God had revealed these things through his prophets, And it shows that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This actually comes, this verse here, it actually comes from Psalm 106, verse 10. But let's look at what it says in Psalm 106, 7 through 10. It says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And we see this kind of over and over again in verses 69 through 75, this idea of being delivered from the hands of the enemy. And here in Psalm 106, 7 through 10, it's talking about Egypt, how he was or how he helped bring them out from the hands of Egypt and how uh, when they're at the Red Sea and it looks like they're in trouble, he parts the Red Sea and he delivers them. And they forget, the nation of Israel forgets, 
and even so, he still saves them. Almost seems here that these words are from Zechariah pointing to a physical deliverance, but also, more than he realized, a, a spiritual deliverance. And it says that this was to show the mercy promised to our fathers. The mercy he showed to his people through the covenants he made to Abraham. He remembers the promises. God made Abraham a promise in Genesis 12, 2 through 3. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, in, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, you know what I think an important part of covenants were? An important part of covenant promises was the part where the people who the covenant was made with had to trust God. They had to trust God. God would make a covenant with them, and their job was to trust that God would do everything he says he was going to do. When God made a covenant with his people, they needed to trust in him and listen and obey, knowing that God will do what he says he is going to do. And Abraham is an example of somebody who trusted in Genesis twenty two fifteen, when he finally has what it is that he had been wanting, he has this child. God comes to him and says, okay, sacrifice your son. And what does he do? He trusts God. He trusts that God has a reason for this. He trusts that God has a purpose for this. And he listens. In Genesis twenty two fifteen through 18, we see the end result of this. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. You see, here's the thing. God had not and God would not forget his covenant. God would not forget the promises that he had made. He remembers his covenants. He remembers his promises. Psalm 105.8, he remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. Micah 7.20, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. He does not forget. God does not forget his promises. He does not forget his covenants. Sometimes we think God forgets, but he doesn't. And it says mercy, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. And as I think about this, I can't help but think, what is the biggest sign of mercy that God could give to his people? And I think it is the answer, his Messiah, his son. The Messiah to come is the greatest gift of mercy that could be given to us. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with the righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then 74 and 75, I absolutely love. This idea, Zechariah kind of lays out, the idea that victory should lead to service and sanctification. Knowing this, this battle has been won, this battle that will be won, it should lead for us into service and sanctification and holiness, or as Warren Wiersbe says it, sanctity and service. 
sanctity and service. First, it says they would serve him without fear. There would be no need to fear. God was with them. God would be with them. God would carry them. God would protect them. God would be with them as they serve him. Zephaniah three fourteen through 17, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. You see, I think this is so important because today this is true for us. We can serve him without fear. We can serve him without fear because we know that no matter what the world may do to us, no matter what threats the world may make against us, God is for us. Death has no power over us. The world has no power over us. And so we can serve him without fear because I think about it like this. The worst thing the world can do, if the worst thing that we can give up serving God is our life, guess what? We win. We win. And so we can serve with no fear because we know that he is for us. And then he points out here, we can serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. Now, there's a bunch of different definitions for what holiness and righteousness means. A couple that I read that I really like is righteousness is the condition of being proven or declared morally excellent, while holiness is the condition of being consecrated or dedicated to moral excellence. The question I ask is, do we strive for these things, holiness and righteousness? 2 Corinthians 7.1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. First Timothy 6.11, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. The question is, are we striving for these things? Do we desire to be holy and righteous before God? And the question, the way we answer this question is to look at our life. Look at the things that we're choosing to partake in. Look at the things that we are choosing to live for. Do the things that we desire, the things that we are choosing to live for, say holiness or righteousness before God? Or are we choosing to live lifestyles? Are we choosing to live in the things that are fleshly, that are sinful, And are we refusing to give those things up? If we're refusing to give those things up and we want to live how we want to live and we want to do what we want to do and if we want to live a sinful life, we can live a sinful life. If that's your desire, then your desire is not to be holy and righteous before God. But are we making an effort to cleanse ourselves from every defilement? Are we making an effort to strive to to flee from things that are not of Him? Are we trying to live a life that is holy and righteous before our Heavenly Father. Verse 76 and 77, it says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. You see, John would have an important task. He would be the prophet of the Most High, of God himself. He would prepare the way for the Messiah. He would be a forerunner for the Messiah. Isaiah 43, it says, A voice cries out, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
Malachi 3.1, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And his task would be important because he would make known to people salvation and the forgiveness of their sins. In some translations, the word here, it, it, it uses remission of sin for the remission of your sin. And I like that word remission. The word remission, it means to send away, to dismiss as a debt. And here's the truth. Every single one of us are in debt to God. And we're in debt to God because we have broken his law. We fall short of his standards. And the truth is we are unable to pay our debt because of that sinful nature in us. We are unable to live according to his standards. And so the truth of this is that we have to reconcile is that there's nothing that we can do to pay off our debts. Nothing. And you hear it said, well, maybe if I'm good, right? Like if I'm good, I'm a good person. I help people who are in need. I, I, you know, I don't swear. I don't do this or I don't do that. I'm really a good person. That's all that matters, isn't it? No, that doesn't pay our debts. And if I can, I can do everything right, you know, I can, I can dot all my I's, I can cross all my T's, and, and then, then I can just pay off that debt, right? No. There is nothing, not a single thing, any one of us in this room can do to pay off that debt because of the sinful nature that is within us. But Christ came into this world, and through his blood, our debts have been paid. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Think about remission to send away, to dismiss. As far as the east is from the west, so does he remove our transgressions from us. John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of this world. Verse 79, 78. Because of his tender mercy of our because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Again, Zechariah mentions how God acted in mercy, the gift of God's undeserved kindness and compassion. And now we see this idea of a coming sunrise. A coming sunrise, this sunrise that would come and bring light. Malachi 4.2, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. We read that last week. And here's the thing. Light was seen as the embodiment of truth and goodness. To say that there was light would be to say that light is this idea of goodness and truth. Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 43, 3, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. In him is light, is truth, is the embodiment of truth and goodness. And so sunrise was coming and that sunrise is Christ who would bring light and life into a dark and sinful world. Matthew four sixteen. the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. 
Luke 2.32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. John 1.4-9, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. You see, with Christ, it was the dawn of a new day that those who were sitting in darkness, who were sitting in the shadow of death, could experience light and have life. He is the light in a dark world. In a world that is desperately in need of light, he is the light. He is the light and the life. And also it tells us that he would bring peace into the world. Think back to Isaiah 9. He is the prince of peace. In him there is peace that is unlike any other type of peace. In him there is a peace that is above anything we can think of when it comes to peace. And guess what? He is the giver of peace. In John fourteen twenty seven, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And here's the good news, because he is the one who brings peace. Guess what? In his sacrifice and the, the body that was broken and the blood that was shed for us, not only does he bring us peace, but that peace that he brings us now gives us peace with God through him. Romans 5, 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the thing, isn't it? We are searching for peace. We long for peace. We desire peace. We're hoping for peace. We're in a time, many of us are, are struggling or going through things, and we're just wanting peace. But we look for it in all the wrong places. People, places, and things, these do not provide real, true peace. You may find peace, but it's momentary peace if it is not peace that comes from Christ. He is the source of true peace. Let me go into verse 80. Go back to John a little bit here. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. What's interesting is verse 80 really covers 30 years. He would grow. He would... Uh, be in the wilderness, then he would make an appearance. The word here for appearance is a word that can carry the, mean, or the meaning commissioned or point out or inaugurated. And so this is his commissioning. This is his inauguration, his appearance. But before he appears, in the meantime, he lived in the desert. And I imagine he was preparing himself both spiritually and physically for what he was going to be doing. But here's what stands out to me from everything that Zechariah writes here. It's a word. Sacrifice. When we think about what this season means, when we think about the birth of his son, Zechariah is pointing us ahead to his sacrifice. And, and what he will do and what he will become, he will be redeemer. He will be salvation. He is the light in a dark world. And he will lay down his life. Can I read to you a story? Hope you don't mind. It's one of my favorite stories, actually. It's a story about a bunny rabbit. And this bunny rabbit, his name is Barrington. What a great name for a rabbit, right? Barrington the bunny. 
Once upon a time, in a large forest, there lived a very furry bunny. He had one lop ear, a tiny black nose, and unusually shiny eyes. His name was Barrington. Barrington was not really a very handsome bunny. He was brown and speckled, and his ears didn't stand upright. But he could hop, and he was, as I've said, very furry. In a way, winter is fun for bunnies. After all, it gives them an opportunity to hop in the snow and, and turn around to see where they have hopped. So in a way, winter was fun for Barrington. But in another way, winter made Barrington sad. For you see, winter marked the time where all of the animal families got together in their cozy homes to celebrate Christmas. He could hop, and he was very furry, but as far as Barrington knew, he was the only bunny in the forest. When Christmas Eve finally came, Barrington did not feel like going home all by himself. So he decided he would hop for a while in the clearing at the center of the forest. Hop, hop, hippity-hop, Barrington made tracks in the fresh snow. Hop, hop, hippity-hop, and he cocked his head and looked back at the wonderful designs he had made. Bunnies, he thought to himself, can hop, and they are very warm, too, because of how furry they are. But Barrington didn't really know whether or not this was true of all bunnies, since he had never met another bunny. When it got too dark to see the tracks he was making, Barrington made up his mind to go home. On his way, however, he passed a large oak tree. High in the branches, there was a great deal of excited chattering going on, and Barrington looked up. It was a squirrel family. What a marvelous time they seemed to be having. Hello up there, called Barrington. Hello down there, came the reply. Having a Christmas party, asked Barrington. Oh, yes, answered the squirrels. It's Christmas Eve. Everybody is having a Christmas party. May I come to your party, said Barrington softly. Are you a squirrel? No. What are you then? A bunny. A bunny? Yes. Well, how can you come to a party if you're a bunny? Bunnies can't climb trees. That's true, said Barrington thoughtfully. But I can hop and I'm very furry and warm. We're sorry, called the squirrels. We don't know anything about hopping and being furry, but we do know that in order to come to our house, you'd have to be able to climb trees. Oh, well, said Barrington. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, chattered the squirrels. And the unfortunate bunny hopped off toward his tiny house. It was beginning to snow when Barrington reached the river. Near the riverbank was a wonderfully constructed house of sticks and mud. Inside, there was singing. It's the beavers, thought Barrington. Maybe they will let me come to their party. And so he knocked on the door. Who's out there, called a voice. Barrington Bunny, he replied. There was a long pause, and then a shiny beaver head broke the water. Hello, Barrington, said the beaver. May I come to your Christmas party, asked Barrington. The beaver thought for a while and then said, I suppose so. Do you know how to swim? No, said Barrington, but I can hop and I'm very furry and warm. Sorry, said the beaver. I don't know anything about hopping and being furry, but I do know that in order to come to our house, you have to be able to swim. Oh, well, Barrington muttered, his eyes filling with tears. I suppose that's true. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, called the beaver and he disappeared beneath the surface of the water. Even as furry as he was, Barrington was starting to get cold, and the snow was falling so hard that his tiny bunny eyes could scarcely see what was ahead of him. He was almost home, however, when he heard the excited squeaking of field mice beneath the ground. It's a party, thought Barrington, and suddenly he blurted out through his tears, Hello, field mice. This is Barrington Bunny. May I come to your party? But the wind was howling so loudly and Barrington was sobbing so much that no one heard him. And when there was no response at all, Barrington just sat down in the snow and began to cry with all his might. 
bunnies, he thought, aren't good to anyone. What good is it to be furry and to be able to hop if you don't have any family on Christmas Eve? Barrington cried and cried, and when he stopped crying, he began to bite on his bunny's foot, but he did not move from where he was sitting in the snow. Suddenly, Barrington was aware he was not alone. He looked up and strained his shiny eyes to see who was there. To his surprise, he saw a great silver wolf. The wolf was large and strong, and his eyes flashed fire. He was the most beautiful animal Barrington had ever seen. For a long time, the silver wolf didn't say anything at all. He just stood there and looked at Barrington with those terrible eyes. And slowly and deliberately, the wolf spoke. Barrington, he asked in a gentle voice, why are you sitting in the snow? Because it's Christmas Eve, said Barrington, and I don't have any family, and bunnies aren't any good to anyone. Bunnies are, too, good, said the wolf. Bunnies can hop, and they are very warm. What good is that? Barrington sniffed. It is very good indeed. The wolf went on, because it is a gift the bunnies are given, a free gift with no strings attached. And every gift that is given to anyone is given for a reason. Someday you will see why it is good to hop and be warm and furry. But it's Christmas, moaned Barrington, and I'm all alone. I don't have any family at all. Of course you do, replied the great silver wolf. All the animals in the forest are your family. Then the wolf disappeared. He simply wasn't there. Barrington had only blinked his eyes, and when he looked, the wolf was gone. All of the animals in the forest are my family, thought Barrington. It's good to be a bunny. Bunnies can hop. That's a gift. And then he said it again, a gift, a free gift. On the night Barrington worked, first he found the best stick he could, and that was difficult because of the snow. Then hip, or then hop, hop, hippity hop to a beaver's house. He left the stick just outside the door with a note on it that read, Here is a good stick for your house. It is a gift, a free gift. No strings attached. Signed, a member of your family. It is a good thing that I can hop, he thought, because the snow is very deep. Then Barrington dug and dug. Soon he had gathered together enough dead leaves and grass to make the squirrel's nest warmer. Hop, hop, hippity hop. He said the grass and leaves just under the large oak tree and attached this message, a gift, a free gift, from a family or from a member of your family. It was late when Barrington finally started home. What made things worse was that he knew a blizzard was beginning. Hop, hop, hippity hop. Soon poor Barrington was lost. The wind howled furiously, and it was very, very cold. It certainly is cold, he said aloud. It's a good thing I'm so furry, but if I don't find my way home pretty soon, I might freeze. Squeak, squeak. And then he saw it, a baby-filled mouse lost in the snow, and the little mouse was crying. Hello, little mouse, Barrington called. Don't cry. I'll be right there. Hippity hop, and Barrington was beside the tiny mouse. I'm lost, sobbed the little fellow. I've never, I'll never find my way home, and I know I'm going to freeze. You won't freeze, said Barrington. I'm a bunny, and bunnies are very furry and warm. You stay right where you are, and I'll cover you up. Barrington lay on top of the little mouse and hugged him tight. The tiny fellow felt himself surrounded by warm furry, cried for a while, but soon, snug and warm, he fell asleep. Barrington only had two thoughts that long, cold night. First, he thought it's good to be a bunny. Bunnies are very furry and warm. And then when he felt the heart of the tiny mouse beating regularly, he thought all the animals in the forest are my family. Next morning, the field mice found their little boy asleep in the snow, warm and snug, beneath the furry carcass of a dead bunny. 
The relief and excitement was so great that they didn't even think to question where the bunny had come from. And as for the beavers and the squirrels, they still wonder which member of their family left the little gift for them that Christmas Eve. After the filled mice had left, Barrington's frozen body simply lay in the snow. There was no sound except that of a howling wind, and nowhere anywhere in the forest noticed the great silver wolf who came to stand beside that brown, lop-eared carcass. But the wolf did come, and he stood there without moving or saying a word all Christmas Day until it was night, and then he disappeared into the forest. You see, I love that story because I think Jesus is our redeemer. He's our salvation. He is our light and darkness, but he is also a sacrifice for us. You see, he laid down the perfect example of what it means to be one who sacrifices. John fifteen thirteen through 14, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And so as we look ahead to what the, the season truly, truly means, the, the birth of Christ, this miraculous birth, the birth of our Messiah, we look ahead to what he will do, what he will become, and what he has done for us. He has sacrificed for us. His blood poured out on the cross shed for each and every one of us. In our broken nature, in our sinful state, in all my wretchedness, in all my brokenness, in all of the, the things that I struggle with, and all the things that I hate about myself, he sacrificed for me. And so I would ask this question to you. When you think about what he has done for you, if you are following him, if you've given your life to him, if you are living for him, What comes out of you because of this? When we think about what it is that he has done, do we pour out our praise to him? Do we celebrate him? Do we thank him? Do we, with everything that is it, just like with Zechariah, just blessings just come out of us? Think back to last week in Mary. In Luke 1, 46 through 47, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, because what God has done for us, it should pour out of us in praise and thanks and celebration about who he is. And guess what? No gift under the tree, nothing like that will ever mean as much as what God has done for us. Our soul should magnify the Lord and pour out in praise This should be the cry of our hearts when we think about what it is that God has done for us. That is the meaning of the season. That is the reason that we celebrate. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they make their way up here, maybe you are here this morning and maybe you find yourself in that place of darkness. Maybe you find yourself in that place of darkness. You find yourself in that valley of the shadow of death and the the shadow of death is around you and you are looking for light. You are looking for peace. Jesus is that light. Jesus is that peace. He He is the light that shines in the middle of chaos, in the middle of our trials and in the middle of the things we are going through. He is the light in our darkness. And so if you are here this morning and you are living in that darkness, 
maybe maybe you want to go towards the light that is Jesus and if that's you this morning you can come and talk with me I'd love to talk with you about following after him living for him or maybe maybe you're like me and sometimes we just get so bogged down in things of this world and we get so bogged down in all of the things that are keeping us busy and are weighing on us and are heavy in our hearts and in our minds and maybe what you need to do this morning is you just need to let those things go Maybe what you need to do is you need to let those things out before God and you just need to spend time in prayer, talking with him, pouring out those things before him. If that's you right where you're sitting this morning, you can pray. Or if you want to come up here and pray, I'd love to pray with you. I know there's brothers and sisters around you who would love to pray with you. But as we come to this season, about materialism it's not about commercialism it's about what he's done for us it's about his body that was broken blood that was poured out shed on the cross for us so that we can have reconciliation with him that we can be redeemed our debt has been paid on that cross that's why we celebrate this season and so if that's you if you want to talk if you want to pray you can do so as we stand together and we sing.